Well, it's, it's really with a great deal of pleasure that I, I give this talk, and I'm very, very honored to have been asked to do this. I've been interested in immune deficiencies in CLL for a long time. We, so um, basically, uh, the outline of my talk is threefold. Again, is to define the clinical problem of immune dysfunction, discuss features of the CLL immune system, how dysfunctional is it, and to review recent data on mechanisms that are causal for immune deficits, particularly, um, as Rick was pointing out, um, maybe, uh, that we can have an opportunity to reverse these immune deficits. So immune dysfunction in CLL is really highlighted by the fact that infections are the major feature related to morbidity and mortality, and this actually occurs in untreated and treated cohorts. 80% of patients will sustain infectious complications at some point during their disease course, and this increases over time. It has been reported that infectious mortalities may range from as, to as high as 30 to 50%. Also, untreated and treated CLL patients have increased incidences of second cancers, and these can be more aggressive. This is particularly true with, with uh, basal squamous and melanoma, but it's actually seen as well in other uh, malignancies. It's been reported to be more aggressive for prostate and lung, for example. These clinical complications are consistent with a profound immunodeficiency. Now, I'd like to highlight the infection profile in CLL because this is a more common problem going forward with most patients. Even treatment-naive patients will suffer from uh, more typically respiratory urinary tract infections it is true they're most commonly bacteria, but they can be viruses and they can be fungi. The, the more common organisms that are found in respiratory tract and urinary tract are listed there for you. There can be viral issues. HSV seropositivity is ubiquitous. Viral reactivation, we need to remember, can increase during the course of the, the rate of it can increase during the course of the disease, particularly with respect to varicella zoster. More recently, with the use of novel agents, particularly early on in the treatment with ibrutinib, this can be associated with invasive fungal infections, including pneumocystis and aspergillosis. One thing I want to highlight is that the precursor to CLL, monoclonal B-cell lymphocytosis, this is high-count MBL, individuals have profound immunodeficiencies. They have an increased rate of serious infections or second malignancies comparable to them developing overt CLL requiring therapy. And we and others have published that they, they do suffer from multiple cellular immune deficiencies, much as CLL. The clinical phenotype for MBL is more significant for serious infections and development of second cancers than progression to CLL. And if you think about it, the prevalence of MBL rises as we age. So it is not a trivial issue. What current therapies or preventative approaches can we use? In particular, with respect to infection, obviously we want to make sure our patients are vaccinated, particularly with the influenza and pneumococcal vaccines. There are some controversial approaches. There is yet no anti-infective prophylaxis that has been proven to be effective in that there has been no randomized trial evaluating the use of prophylactic antimicrobials. Replacement IVIG obviously can work, or, or IM, but it has variable outcomes. And, of course, pneumocystis prophylaxis can be used. Growth factors, currently they're not routinely encouraged for untreated CLL. 
However, if you're going to use them, I would recommend that you follow the guidelines of the Infectious Society uh, of America, and I've included the reference and the, and the parameters they use to initiate growth factors. In terms of second malignancies, we're all very aware of this, but I really encourage you to be counseling your patients to have regular dermatologic evaluations at least every 12 months, and, and if they've had skin cancers, even more, perhaps every six. The uh, recommendations for screening procedures should be followed rigorously as patients go through their disease course uh, and uh, depending on their own individual medical backgrounds. So what about the abnormal cellular components of the CLL, uh, of the CLL immune system? Well, they're myriad, and I've listed them here in brief. They include B-cell defects, NK-cell uh, defects, neutrophil defects, monocyte defects, deficiencies in complement. It isn't just about low immunoglobulins, even though 50 to 70% of our patients, and perhaps more as the disease progresses, will have low immunoglobulins. I want to highlight innate cells, and in particular, I, I point out NK cells, neutrophils, and monocytes that have very short half-lives listed there for you. These innate cells, including dendritic cells, are responsible for the initial resistance to bacterial infections and also likely the occurrence of other malignancies. And I'm going to return to this concept later in my talk. What about T cells and CLL? This is just a partial list of the problems. T cell numbers and subtypes are really uh, very disturbed, very abnormal co compared to healthy controls, as is their function. And this is just a partial list taken from a very nice paper by Mann in the British Journal just a few few months ago. So what's wrong with it? Some of the key points, it's featured by recurrent infections and second malignancies. Immune dysregulation is a cardinal feature, very complicated though, and involves multiple cell types. It, can, it is present in MBL, it's present in early rise stage, and worsens during clinical observation. Even in the absence of disease progression, you may have patients who will continue to suffer greatly from immune deficiencies. So let me turn now to what's going on. What is the etiology of immune dysfunction? And there's a lot of work going on in, the, in this area. And I'm going to focus in uh, on some more recent work we've done. The primary hypothesis here is that the leukemic B cell and a target cell interaction for it plays a key role in the alteration of specific target cell functions and responses. And the areas that we've studied more recently include T cell status, as it relates to defective immune synapses, and even more recently on what is going on in the bone marrow in terms of hematopoiesis. I'm not talking about the malignant uh, hematopoiesis. I'm talking about normal hematopoiesis. And in particular, I'm going to emphasize innate blood cell production. So what is an immune synapse and T cell function? So this is a rather pretty picture taken from a... Um, from a paper in Nature uh, several years ago, and you see the uh, antigen-presenting cell in blue interacting with an engineered T cell in red, and you can see the very tight uh, immune synapse uh, that is occurring, and what you also see there is the activation of ZAP70 by confocal. So it's important to remember that the immune synapse is the interface between an APC with its target cell, and for sake of this discussion, it can be a T cell, a B cell, could be a natural killer cell. 
These synapses are master regulators of T-cell activation and effector function in response to APCs. They play a crucial role in regulating T-cell activation and the polarized secretion of effector molecules like granzyme B and perforin, which they need to kill cells. They ultimately affect motility, cytotoxicity, and the role of the T-cell in adaptive immune function. Now, several years ago, Alan Ramsey and John Gribben showed that T-cells from CLL exhibit defective immune synapse formation. And what you see in the upper panel is a normal T-cell in red interacting with a superantigen-stimulated B-cell in blue. And you can see the very tight immune synapse with robust F-actin staining. In contrast, CLL T-cell being asked to conjugate and form an immune synapse with a superantigen-stimulated B-cell does not do so, or does it very poorly. And Alan has gone on to show it's both CD4 and CD8 cells that suffer from this defective immune synapse formation. Just summarizing some of the more recent work that he's done, I've mentioned the CD4 and CD8 T cells share in this impairment. CLL cells can actually induce this defective synapse in, in healthy cells. And CLL T cells, as a result of defective synapse, have reduced activation and effector function. This is a figure taken from one of Alan's uh, more recent papers where lenalidomide was shown to reconstitute synapse function. So in the upper panel, you see untreated CLL B and T cells uh, in vitro where there's very little F-actin synapse formation and very little tyrosine phosphorylation. However, when you co-culture them with lenalidomide, there is very robust immune synapse formation. Now, we wondered whether or not this could be reversed with conventional approaches for CLL, including the use of lenalidomide. So a few years ago, we conducted a, uh, a, a trial where progressive patients were treated with CIT using pentastatin, cyclophosphamide, and rituximab. This is followed in the responders by six months of lenalidomide, and this is a daily administration at 2.5 to, to 5 migs. We then obtained T cells at baseline following CIT and at two time points while patients were on lenalidomide and assessed synapse formation. We actually found long-term repair of the synapse activity, and I'm going to show you that in the next, uh, in the next slide. So what you see here in the upper panel is prior to CIT, there is almost little or no immune synapse formation after six cycles of CIT, there is some immune synapse formation, but much more robust immune synapse formation after the patient takes lenalidomide. This is shown more graphically for you, where these are the baseline immune synapse, where we're measuring F-actin robotically. Of, uh, in, these are in 28 responding patients. This goes up after CIT, further after th three cycles, and even further after six cycles. In addition, we were able to show that there is more effector molecule production. And here I'm showing you a representative figure where you see more granzyme B production after the six cycles of lenalidomide. Another important outcome for this study was it actually gave us a functional immune monitoring assay. So we can use these approaches to look at immune synapse capacity, and we can also measure effector moieties uh, as they relate to T-cell activation with this more functional immune synapse. So in summary of this work, 
Untreated CLL patients have defective T-cell synapse capacity. It's associated with dysfunctional T-cells. It is amenable to drug-mediated improval, for example, with lenalidomide. There are implications, then, for restoring innate uh, adaptive T-cell function. I apologize for that. Clearance of immunosuppressive leukemic cells can mediate some repair, as we showed you in that trial with CIT, but there is further enhancement with lenalidomide. And we now have an immune monitoring assay to determine when in the course of therapy T-cell synapse is maximized. Now, how can we use this? Well, given the talks uh, this morning, I would indicate that one of the uh, nice uh, applications of this assay is it could potentially indicate when it's best to harvest T-cells for use in immunotherapy, because if you're harvesting T-cells from a patient and they're not, they're beginning to, uh, you're beginning with a dysfunctional T-cell, that would not be optimal. But you could potentially look at your patient, put them through therapy, and then harvest uh, when the uh, monitoring assay says it is best to harvest. And so that might be a good way to enhance CAR-Ts and CLL. Let me turn, lastly, to hematopoietic function in CLL. So I'm returning again to why evaluate hematopoiesis in bone marrow. One reason is it's the key source of most innate blood cells. This includes neutrophils, monocytes, NK cells, and dendritic cells. And it is these cells we rely on to initially resist infections. Now, this is just a brief overview of bone marrow hematopoiesis. As you remember, this is hematopoiesis. Differentiation of hematopoiesis is basically uh, uh, passing on to multipotent progenitors the ability to ultimately derive even more mature progeny, shown here, that uh, result in an effective bone marrow. So the long-term hematopoietic stem cell repopulates the bone marrow. It's the only one capable of self-renewal with appropriate cellular and microenvironmental cues. A multipotent progenitor cell is derived, and from that, these more mature progeny listed here that give rise to the um, mature uh, bone marrow cells we need to, to be healthy, with the exception of the T cell. At the far end here, this is more robustly formed in lymph nodes. I also include for your uh, retention for a little bit that transcription factors like P1 and GATA2 are critically important for the branch point lineage specifications, and I'll come back to that in, in a moment. So how do we assess bone marrow hematopoiesis? All the studies I'm going to show you are in untreated CLL. First, we estimated leukemic burden in the bone marrow by flow. Once we had that, we did hematopoietic progenitor cell frequencies, and we determined by flow cytometry what their frequencies were after we eliminated leukemic cells because that obviously would result in a dilution factor. We also isolated bone marrow CD34 positive progenitors and tested their function using short-term colony-forming assays. So we found, and have recently reported, that there are decreased primitive progenitor frequencies. And what you see for sake of orientation is untreated CLL compared to healthy controls, three different progenitor, primitive progenitor populations, significantly less than a match control population. What about the more differentiated progeny? These are also decreased. So just for sake of reference, again, monocyte progenitors, multipotent, common lymphoid, common myeloid, common lymphoid, and NK progenitors are all significantly decreased in the bone marrow of these untreated patients. Also, there, 
their uh, progenitor, these progenitors have decreased function. Their colony forming capacity is uh, much uh, worse than the controls we studied. So what you see here on the left-hand side are total colony formation of untreated controls compared to healthy controls. And this was true for total colonies, but also you can subdivide them into granulocyte erythroid and erythroid colonies. We still see deficiencies. We also found that this hematopoietic dysfunction can be mirrored in blood. So what you see in these four different inserts are matched blood and bone marrow samples from the same patient uh, where we compared them to uh, what we expect to see. The, uh, we, we, we looked at these in NK cells, classical monocytes, and non-classical monocytes, as well as T cells. What you see in each insert is a, a solid line, which is the average of a normal individual with the range around that. And what, while we could not find a correlation for T cells, we could find fairly tight correlations for blood and bone marrow and NK cell classical monocytes and non-classical monocytes. So you can, in fact, detect these in the blood if you look carefully enough. So what is the mechanism for this hematopoietic dysfunction? To set the stage for this, I'll just quickly go through um, some of the biology that relates to uh, differentiation. So what you see in this left-hand side is a multipotent progenitor with three transcription factors that are crucial for its function and differentiation, GATA2, GATA1, and PU1. If, uh, as you see in the left-hand side, GATA, um, if you see um, GATA1 uh, rise, you see, a, um, you see a decrease in PU1, and so what you end up having is a uh, GATA2, GATA1 predominant progenitor that makes red cells. If, on the other hand, PU1 arises and dominates, GATA1 and 2 are eliminated, and only PU1 remains, and that, pro that progenitor will preferentially make monocytes. So, so transcription factor uh, balance matters a lot. And what you see on the right-hand side of the slide is our finding when we looked at two different progenitor populations, there is a very unusual triple positive progenitor population this is um, obviously not transcription factor balance, and we believe is implicated in this dysfunction that I just outlined for you. Now, an interesting thing about this is that TNF-alpha has been shown to induce expression of these uh, hematopoietic sulfate determinants, PU1 and GATA2, for sure. And it turns out that TNF-alpha is produced by CLLB cells, and their levels associate with disease progression. We have subsequently found that CLL cells by direct contact and TNF-alpha can induce increases in PU1 and GATA2 in the hematopoietic in control progenitors. And I'll show you an example of that in the next slide. So what we have here uh, is a progenitor cell. This is uh, HSC MPPs, where we looked at PU1 and GATA2 as well as GATA1 after 12 and 24 hours of incubation with TNF-alpha, and you see very obvious increases in both these transcription factors, but not GATA1. Now, it turns out that you can block this if you use anti-TNF-alpha uh, antibody, and in this case, what you're seeing is the increase in uh, PU1 in two different progenitors with CLB cells, but when you co-culture the CLB cells with this blocker, you don't see this increase. Now, to bring this home a little bit more, this is a CLL patient that I follow who has inflammatory arthritis and who was placed on Humira. 
And uh, what you, we did was we were able to get baseline studies uh, of his blood and bone marrow prior to going on Humira and then after four months. And what you see here is increases in blood monocytes and bone marrow monocytes after four months of anti-TNF therapy. Perhaps more excitingly uh, to me is that his colony forming capacity also increases. So you see total colony forming capacity is increased over that seen at baseline. So in summary, we have found profound deficiencies in CLL hematopoiesis. This is primarily manifest by decreased progenitors and their progeny. Pro these progenitors have functional abnormalities. We've identified uh, alterations in the key molecular regulators of myeloid and erythroid development, P1 and GATA2. And the increased expression of these is likely linked to constitutive production of TNF-alpha by CLL B cells. This, I think, provides a clue in alternative mechanisms to enhance CLL bone marrow function. The significance of this I'll just extend in, in my last slide. What implications for care might this have? Potent propensity to infection could be modified by unique therapies other than a simple reduction, if you will, of leukemic burden with its own consequences. However, the other thought that I would have, and I throw out for your consideration, is therapy should be sought that not only reduce leukemic burden, but also enhance hematopoiesis. It should matter that a given response level is matched by a return to normal hematopoiesis, and I think those are interesting challenges for us going forward. I just want to end my talk by acknowledging uh, the people I work with. For the bone marrow hematopoietic progenitor analysis, Kay Medina and a wonderful pre-doctoral student, Bryce Manso. The synapse studies with Alan Ramsey and Tate Chanafelt, Connie Lesnick, and uh, we're fortunate to have funding from uh, Mayo Clinic and also from the NCI. Thank you for your attention. So we're going to go a little bit uh, out of order, and I'm going to open up the floor to questions for Dr. K at this time, and we'll hold on the cases at the microphone. Well, we're, uh, six cycles of PCR were given, followed by lenalidomide. What is the total follow-up, uh, say, for how many years, and have you seen any decreased uh, in clinical infections in such cases? Is the question, how do you best use lenalidomide? Uh, no. Actually, in the clinical trial where you gave six cycles of PCR followed by right. lenalidomide, right. Uh, what is the uh, uh, follow-up uh, at this time? And uh, have you seen decrease in clinical infection rates in those patients? So I, I can't answer that question. Um, this is um, a long-term study that we do have, though, where we're looking at a, a matched because this was not a randomized phase three, it was a single. It was just one arm, really. Uh, we are continuing to follow that up, and we have almost five years of follow-up. I don't know the answer to that question, but obviously, we're hoping it makes a difference. I can't answer that crucial question right now, though. Good All question. Right. So, Neil, I have a question for you. One of the uh, questions that I often get confronted with is. With my patients who um, have CLL and get started on anti-TNF inhibitors for their rheumatologic or other uh, autoimmune disease, you know, the concern always is if we're increasing the risk of developing a Richter's transformation. Yeah. You know, they do see more DLBCLs in patients with anti-TNF than other rheumatologic uh, medications. 
Yeah. Um, and it's interesting, as you suggest in your data, that there might actually be an improvement in the immune system function that may actually counter that. Do we have data suggesting that the concern is real? And what are your thoughts? Well, it is a bit conflicting. Uh, obviously, I'm aware of the data of increased uh, tra um, transformation and uh, the long-term outcomes for uh, other for individuals who don't have CLL who are on anti-TNF, it's worrisome. There uh, certainly are, uh, those are clinical complications we need to be concerned about. For the CLL patient, I think it's a different story in that they are starting from deficient hematopoiesis to begin with. These other individuals may not be. Those people have RA, uh, you could argue they might, but, but I don't think it's the same. So I think the deficit in the immune system for a CLL patient with reconstitution with a drug such as lenalidomide is a real one, but I would not be thinking long-term here. I would be thinking short-term, uh, that if we could show that, in fact, their innate blood, for as, a, as an outcome, their innate blood cell levels were now uh, more consistent with what you would see in a healthy individual, we might want to, be, we might want to stop because of the, con other, the concern of long-term impacts of the anti-TNF. So clinically, do you, when you have a CLL patient who the rheumatologist is considering anti-TNF therapy, do you, one, suggest against that, or two, do you initiate therapy for the CLL and attempt to prophylactically control? I, I really can't make a recommendation to a rheumatologist based on what we know. It has stimulated uh, us to think that we should be doing the same kinds of studies on these individuals. We have no clue about uh, the reconstitution of the hematopoietic system for the uh, rheumatic arthritic patient. We do have data on the CLO patient, and again, I would emphasize, I think they're coming from a deficit that we think we can potentially rehabilitate. It remains to be proven uh, that that can be done consistently and with clinical benefit. Um, I also, though, now that I have the opportunity, even if it didn't, necessarily reduce infections um, in an overt way. I would uh, think that um, having a normal hematopoietic system with a specific therapy, it makes a difference to the individual over the long term. And this may relate to other clinical complications such as second malignancies, recurrence of CLL. Uh, having a normal bone marrow uh, might be a much better a way to resist recurrence of disease than not. At the microphone. If you have patients that have been on the novel therapies and are UMRD for multiple years, would you expect their hematic system to recover normally without lenalidomide? Would I expect it to, re uh, to be normal if there was no specific therapy to reconstitute? Is that what you're asking? You know, I... I will have specific data on that. Right now, it looks to me, uh, based on the novel therapy data we have, that there is some reconstitution. Uh, there is some definite reconstitution with chemoimmunotherapy in patients we've looked at where individuals in complete responses seem to now have a completely reconstituted progenitor cell population. What I don't have is long-term outcomes from that reconstitution. And uh, there are definitely individuals who are in novel therapies, again, I've not published this, who after a year still do not have a complete return to what we would call normal levels. So it remains to be determined. 
Koti intravenously immunoglobulin replacement therapy modify T-cell function in CLL? I'm sorry, could you, could you repeat that, please? I couldn't quite. In, intravenously immunoglobulin modify T-cell function in CLL. Is the immunoglobulin level modified? Is, it? is the immunoglobulin could act as immunoregulator? Then uh, in, we have uh, so, demonstrated that the reemplacement therapy could ameliorate uh, uh, T cell function. So after the therapies like lenalidomide, do we see return of normal immunoglobulin oh, yeah. levels in these patients? Thank you. Uh, so to date, we have not seen that. It uh, does not appear to be impacting yet on immunoglobulin levels. Uh, interesting that you bring that up, though. I did not have time to show this data, but plasma cells in uh, CLL bone marrow are almost completely absent. And uh, this is even in untreated patients. We can't find them. And uh, my guess is that we're going to have to have some other maneuver because it's the plasma cell in bone marrow that makes immunoglobulin. And uh, there's something serious going on there. So um, there may be other maneuvers we need to, to utilize. In the back of the room. Hi, thank you. Um, some of the preventative measures that you mentioned was uh, vaccinations, yeah. and particularly since we're in the flu season, would you think that these patients, when we're giving them kind of like immune modulators, would actually amount a response to a particular vaccination? And do you recommend all patients getting that regardless, even though we have like B cell and T cell uh, defects? Yeah. I, it, it, we try hard to look at that. We've tried to get uh, vaccination trials where we'd put patients on low doses of lenalidomide and then look at responses to influenza and, and pneumovax and now Prevna 13 and 23. We, we can't do the trials because they all come to us with vaccinations already in place. Um, but um, it needs to be done. I think it should be done. And it wouldn't necessarily only be with lenalidomide. Uh, this is obviously one of a series of imids that are out there that uh, look very interesting. I'm trying to remember, is it avidamide? This is the one of the next generations of the imids, and that looks very interesting in terms of enhancing T-cell function because of its ability to increase interferon um, levels. Uh, so there's something going there. I, I, I just, I mean, we need to encourage vaccination, but you're right, many of the patients will have suboptimal responses, but it's still better than doing nothing. Yeah. We usually suggest that everyone around them in the family obviously still gets the vaccination, but sometimes we don't typically do that for some of the patients. Thank you. All right. Thank you. Thank you.